Hey, welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for November the 19th on a Friday headed towards the weekend. And good news announcements, I think. I don't know how to spin them in a bad way, that's for sure. With the arrival soon of 5 to 11-year-olds getting vaccinated here in Ontario and in the GTA. Don't have specific dates. Yeah, there's going to be some crowding for appointments. Yeah, you won't get it at the exact time you want and the exact location you want. But it is coming. It is inevitable. It is pending. So we'll talk about that as well as the dropping of the PCR test across the border for trips. That's got me really excited. Um, haven't been across the border in a car since September of 2019. So it's been way too long. 20, what are we talking? 26 months. That's too long. Ryan Ingram, biostatistician, talking about COVID. And we'll talk to Caroline Alfonso, Globe and Mail education reporter, amongst other things on the podcast. Glad you found us. Toronto Today for a Friday starts now. Here's something I don't have to worry about and, and parents do and something that is post me and parents have. So let me start here. Vaccinations for five to 11 year olds. I'm really happy about this for people. I really am. Um, today, now I do think there's going to be a little bit of stress thinking, I don't want to be late for this. I don't want people jumping ahead of me. I remember this. I can recount the exact emotions and the exact conversations when my mom with her dad, uh, with, with her uh, husband, my dad, were trying to get the vaccines in the spring. And I want to say this was March. It might have been early April. It's amazing how spring just kind of, you know, floods your last spring kind of floods your memory. And you can't remember dates very well at all. And I'm great at that. Usually it's just it's I, it's a gift. I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for these powers. They just came to me. But um, and it was very concerning. My mom had me, my sister in upstate New York, my sister in Ottawa already all at nine or 10 in the morning, whenever it opened, ready to go online. And she was going to make the phone call, you know, on her landline. You see what I'm dealing with here. And the idea was get two appointments for uh, my mom and dad. Now, uh, eventually there was success. It's the irony is the, uh, the American sister, uh, she's not born in the States, but living there was able to make the appointment before the two before me, and uh, and and my other sister Megan, who lives in Ottawa, so you know she's she's in line. The will has been restructured since then. I'm just going to tell you that it's very disappointing. So I, you know, I'm going to be stuck like uh, Martha Rogers at, at at the end of all this. It's ridiculous. But either way, um, we got the appointments. But you remember what that was like, and there was stress about am I am I am I going to get to go soon? Am I in a hot spot? I remember booking the appointment the very first time for me. And, uh, and I was behind my wife because my wife was considered an essential caregiver for her dad. So she went probably six, seven weeks before me. She got her shot. But I remember the level of excitement. And there's going to be a level of excitement with parents here today. But, right, hold those horses. Because there's no sense right now as to the day that there will be a first booking here in Ontario. And... I don't think that's a stress point. I don't think it should be. And I know you're saying, of course it is. But uh, Health Canada is going to approve Pfizer for kids today. But it's going to take time for the province to get doses. Public health units are going to get the uh, doses and administer the vaccine to kids. We talked about this before, that it would be great if a lot of these shots got into doctor's offices and pediatrician's offices and somewhere where you would take your kids that it's a more comfortable environment for them 
than a big clinic. I made this case two days ago about the shoppers drug mart testing. I know there's a people there's a lot of people that are militantly, aggressively upset that they're going to allow for asymptomatic testing at shoppers drug marts. Well, my thought is this. There's only so many people that are going to take take you up on that per se. Okay. Um, but the, but if you want testing done, and and we do, we want sick people to test for a period of time. You don't want them. They don't want to go to an emergency room, a walk-in clinic, a uh, tent uh, to to do this. Okay, in minus fifteen degree weather, it's not ideal. No one's going to tell you that it is. But we did symptom asymptomatic testing last year in Shoppers Drug Marts for going back and going into long-term care and going to visit people in the hospital and for uh, essential travel and all that. And I, I don't want to say it went flawlessly. Nothing has. But it seems like if it's done via appointment, it seems like if it's done with, uh, you know, precaution, it, it, you can get this done. You're not going to have people up and down each aisle in Shoppers Drug Mart hacking and coughing and wheezing and making each other sick. There's a lot of people trying to portray this like it'll be way worse than it actually will be. Kind of like how stadiums were going to be super spreader events. Like I, I don't mean when we opened in Toronto, but all through last spring and summer. Oh, the horror. The Blue Jays are playing a season opener in Texas. Oh, the horror. College football is back and full crowds are back. Um, we're past that. We're past that and we are staying past that. I know that. I'm not telling you that that's my rule. I'm telling you what the rules are. I'm telling you where we've hurtled past and we where we are not going back to. So um, when it comes to the vaccinations for kids, I, w- I want them to be in good environments where a five or or six-year-old or seven-year-old doesn't get stressed. I would vaccinate my healthy kids. I would do that. But I know there's some parents that aren't necessarily going to. Later in the morning, we're going to talk to Caroline Alfonso. She's the Globe and Mail's education reporter. But we talk about the impact of vaccines and schools. And there's just a lot of domino effect here. There's a, a, a big domino effect here with when we can take off masks in schools as well, which you've heard me say adamantly uh, needs to be done at a certain point in time and no don't misunderstand and some people are intentionally misunderstanding i think because they want an argument that time isn't now that time wasn't four weeks ago but it is something that when we got our teenagers vaccinated we looked and said well that's one of the next steps that's what i want and we're gonna have to stop playing these reindeer games of but it shows you how much you care for your fellow human great wear a t-shirt there's other ways we can show that we care and are concerned for our fellow human but it's abnormal to wear the mask if you're a 14-year-old healthy vaccinated kid for seven hours a day sitting in a classroom. Like, deny that. And there are some that try. There's some that are like, ah, it's cool. The kids don't mind it. Blah, blah, blah. I don't have time for that anymore. I don't have any tolerance for that argument anymore. Not a, not a second. We'll talk to Ryan Imgren, by the way, at 730 and ask him his thoughts on education, masks, schools, et cetera, et cetera. The other big thing that's happening today. So this is a great day. Look, it's, it's great. It'll come. That time will, will, uh, will show up. You will get your appointment. We're not going to run out of vaccines. Procurement was the big issue when we were starting to vaccinate our most vulnerable. It won't be here with the amount of doses that Health Canada is bringing in for that particular first shot. There's going to be some debate about the uh, time in between the first and second shot. It does look like we're going to go longer, potentially eight weeks compared to three weeks in the United States. And I think eight weeks might be the better call for longer efficacy. But we'll see. 
I'm going to talk about this at seven o'clock. There's still going to or eight at eight o'clock with you guys. There's still going to be things that are going to happen and you better brace yourself for it. Like there's going to be, oh my gosh, there's uh, Johnny's five and he got vaccinated last month and he tested positive. Yeah, that's happening with adults. Why would you think that that won't happen with kids? Of course, that's going to happen. Like we have to understand these things, right? We have to understand what a positive case is, but in a fully vaccinated person, it means absolutely a minuscule amount that it meant last year in comparison. We have to realize some of these things. I think we do anyway. Uh, one more on this uh, and what will happen today, the border policy in Canada for short trips. A lot of criticism towards it. Um, what's the public health value of getting tested in Canada, going into the United States, going wherever, whenever, however often for up to three days, and then you show them on the way back the results of the test that you took before you crossed into the United States. Does that sound like sound science? Does that do you does that come across to you? Does that land for you like it's really smart medicine and preventive tactics? Not really, does it? But this is what Health Canada's had. And uh, yeah, at a certain point, Dr. Teresa Tam and Health Canada and the and the federal government have to look at this and it looks like they finally have decided to look at this there's a lot of people it th this was always going to be a dud for travelers this wasn't going to work unless you were going down to the states for the deep part of the winter and you were like kind of gone for good or at least for weeks and months on end people weren't going to take weekend trips they sure weren't going to take day trips monday on the show we talked about the attendance at the uh maple leaf sabers game in buffalo this is like 6,800 people there. They listed as at 8,100, 8,200. There might, might have been 7,000 people there. If you counted people dressed as blue seats, you might have got to 7,000 people. That's a problem. And that wouldn't be happening if there wasn't a test requirement, an expensive one, a cumbersome one, a complicated one on the way back. And so lots of people have criticized this policy. Lots of epidemiologists have said none of this makes sense. And so we got to make sense of it or you lose public trust when you have public health officials doing non things that uh, that don't drastically improve our public health. I mean, it's on. It's like John Stewart. The name of the disease is the same name as the lab. So if you're within public health, you better help the public health. And if your policy is deemed as being uh, contradictory to that or non effective of that, you lose public trust, plain and simple. All that stuff happens. So um, that's going to change. What we don't know is whether this changes by next Monday, next Tuesday. Those are some of the rumors that it won't happen. I've talked about those rumors that, that I'd heard for a while, but I'd heard next Monday it would change. We're getting this announcement now. Maybe um, my source was right and, uh, and it's Monday. Maybe it's more early December. We'll see if indeed that's the case. And on uh, this particular weekend, uh, kids coming home from school four weeks from today. That's the Christmas break. Four weeks from today, they're going to bring back rapid tests. That's interesting. We didn't expect that to be the case. We'll talk about it right now with education uh, reporter for the Globe and Mail, Caroline Alfonso. We'll get to rapid tests. We'll get to vaccination influence on schools, masking in schools. But let's talk first about the semester v quadmester scenario. The, uh, uh, the, the quadmester, a thing of the past starting in January, all high schools in Ontario back to a semester system. Let's talk about that. Parents seem to be approving of this. Yeah, you're completely right, Greg. Like parents, students, 
teachers, you name it, school boards, they were all urging the government to change back to the regular four course a day semester model. You know, the reason the government had done what, you know, modified semester, quadmasters, whatever it was for school boards last year, and even for this currently this year is because they thought they didn't want to mix cohorts, right? There was that risk. But when you have, you know, there's a bunch of students saying we're all vaccinated. And when you have 80%, uh, more than 80% of 12 to 17 year olds now vaccinated, some areas in Halton, there's over 90% of 12 to 17 year olds vaccinated. So you're sort of thinking, okay, maybe it's time to get back to some sort of normalcy. Like we know the pandemic is not over, but when you have such high vaccination rates and it's, you know, Greg, I mean, you have kids in high school. It was, it's hard on kids to be in class for two and a half hours at a time, right? That's, that's a, that's a long slog uh, to be in a room and it's hard for teachers as well. It's hard for teachers as well. I, I think it's, I think two things about what you just said. One is it, once you get to 12th grade, I bet you in some way, in some way, it's good training for university because you and I would remember and a lot of our listeners remember you're going right from high school to maybe maybe a three hour lecture or a two hour seminar session with 15 kids and, and you got to contribute. So those were kind of like your muscle memory is brand new for for a lot mm-hmm. of what what the responsibilities of a university course load is. So maybe I thought in 12th grade, it's good training. But to your point. To enter right into grade nine, into two and a half hour classes when you're kind of hopping from subject to subject to recess to lunch in grade eight, that's a, that was a big step for some kids in Paris yeah. last year. I mean, for, for, for a 14-year-old, right? Like to yeah. sit, sit in a classroom for two and a half hours, have a mini break, another two and a half hours. And, you know, sometimes you're getting, what is your subject selection? It could be math and physics for one term. And that's really tough, right? If you If you have sort of a, an English course, which is also, don't get me wrong, is also difficult, but it depends on sort of the subject links that you have in that term. And that can make a very, very complicated, difficult semester or quadmester for a kid. So I think returning to regular semesters, everybody was looking for that. They wanted to know the direction for February, and now we have direction. And I think there was a from what I heard from parents and students and teachers today, there was a bit of a collective sigh of relief that mm. that is happening for the second term. Caroline Alfonso is our guest on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. She's the education reporter uh, and a great one at that for the Globe and Mail. Let me ask you, I, before we pivot to elementary, I, I would say about high school, I think I think it's gone remarkably well. There have been very few schools in the GTA have to close. When they have, they've been back relatively quickly seven or eight days. And, you know, it's it's interesting because these were the kids where vaccination was an option. Many parents took uh, the province, obviously, up on that option and got them vaccinated before Labor Day. And I'd I'd also say, Carol, like these are the kids. These are more of the kids that are uh, that had to get the vaccine to play indoor sports. They would have to get the vaccine to have a part time job or if they wanted to go to movies together. They're more the kids that are going to be um, social. Like we forget sometimes Mm -hmm. five and six year olds. I'm out of that wheelhouse, but you forget, like, they don't do a lot of moving around. They go wherever their parents go. They're not doing sleepovers yet. They're not, they're, you know, they're not going on field trips. So the the high schools have gone so well when we consider that high school kids have probably spread pretty far and wide their, their contacts compared to a grade one or grade two student. Totally. I agree. And I remember um, Greg writing a story at the beginning of the school year, especially in Toronto when extracurriculars were not back yet and high school students saying, 
we did our part. We got vaccinated. Why haven't you brought that back for us? Because many of them felt like we want after last year and, you know, a combination of virtual learning and in-class learning and having quad masters, most of them were sick of it. And they're like, we need to do our part to get back into a normal year and to get back into extracurriculars, whether it's clubs or sports or what have you. And they did it. And so, yeah, they're back. And I think it's gone relatively well from what I see. Like it's not as, you know, what we were expecting that chaos hasn't happened. So I feel like it's gone relatively well across the system. The the idea, and this got announced on yesterday on Thursday, um, that kids would potentially bring rapid tests home in a voluntary program. That caught me a little bit by surprise. Had you, did it catch many parents, educators by surprise? Most, you know, some of the people that have been very critical of measures by the province, um, maybe from the beginning of this pandemic are kind of looking going, no, that's a good thing. We wish it had been earlier, but they're applauding Mm -hmm. the province for getting these tests into the hands of parents to to monitor their kids over Christmas. It it did catch a lot of people by surprise only because, Greg, the province had resisted the idea of widespread surveillance testing. If you remember back in September, early October, there's a bunch of parent communities in right across the province that got together and got their hands on rapid tests for their for their kids, you know, to keep their kids safe in schools and the province shut shut it down. They said those tests are meant for workplaces, not schools. So it did catch parents by surprise today. I mean my Twitter feed is a lot of like, well finally this has come on board. Um, and what they're doing is it's So every kid will get five tests over the winter holiday break. And that's what the province is hoping that they're used. It's all voluntary, of course, but the province is hoping that they're used because they expect an uptick in cases Mm -hmm. as people move indoors over the winter. And so they can reopen schools in January, knowing that, you know, a whole bunch of kids did these tests over that period tested hopefully negative and can come back into the school system and then it can keep running. So it's five over the winter break. Parents are, I think parents are surprised. I was surprised as a parent of two young kids, like I'm going to get five tests, 10 tests for my kids. So yeah, I mean, a welcome, a welcome initiative. Many parents are saying much too late. We should have been doing this you know, on a voluntary basis since the beginning of the year, especially, especially Greg, because the vaccine is literally right around the corner. Yeah, and 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 that's uh, that's where I want to go. The vaccines for five to elevens will be a matter of days, maybe a couple weeks at the most. Um, I I felt like I was stepping out on a ledge a few weeks ago, saying I'm not sure that I would mandate it. I'm not sure that I that I disagree with the Ford government, and I'm I'm not sure I agree with Stephen Del Duca or um, Mayor John Tory and, and Dr. Eileen Davila, who said we should mandate this for five to elevens. And the reason I said that was I, I certainly want them available. I want every parent to be able to make a choice. But I think there's a lot of parents that, uh, you know, I, I think they think a little more, and I don't mean this demeaningly, preciously about a five and six year old than they do a 14 and 15 year old. Maybe they're not as as uh, weathered by then with with parenting. It's all some of it's still new. And this pandemic started when those kids were three years old. So. I, I just wondered about uptake, Caroline. What, how did you view it? I, I worried if you force anybody to do anything, people will get suspicious. And whereas a vaccine mandate, I'm for it for, you know, you and me to go here, there, everywhere, because I think that helped uptake and it made mm-hmm. all of us feel safe. 
I, I think it would have been a slippery slope with parents. How did, how did you view it? So I, you know, my group of friends are all ready to vaccinate their kids. We, Mm -hmm. we, we think quite alike, but I, I do hear from parents that are saying, you know, we rushed out to get the vaccine, but I don't know if I want my six-year-old to be vaccinated. I kind of want to see how it goes. Maybe there'll be more data in a month or two. You know, I think the reason that I understand the hesitancy, well, I don't understand, but there is a hesitancy out out there. But for me, getting a vaccine also equates to a less disruptive school year. So I want less disruption for my children who have been disrupted for almost two years in their education. I want more of that. And getting a vaccine could potentially mean that for my kids. That's enough reason for me to vaccinate my children. As far as making it mandatory, I don't have an opinion on that, Greg. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, perhaps the province wants provinces or Ontario wants to see what the uptake will be like how parents rush to it, we may be pleasantly surprised. Like, look at the 12 to 17-year-old group, right? We Did we think that it would be over 80%? I don't know. I didn't think we did, but here we are, and it's still going. So we may be pleasantly surprised in the end how many people want this. Um, In the community I am, especially in the sports community, parents want this because they want their kids to be at the hockey game, right? So things like that play into people's decisions. No one speaks for everybody as we've realized through this entire pandemic. And we all have to have a a sense of doing the collective good. But to your point, I think that's where parents don't want to feel burned when they got their teenagers vaccinated. And we also don't want to promise our, like, think about all the things that we can't promise our kids. We can't tell them when A, B, or C was going to happen, but it's a lovely thing when it does and and they get more of their Mm -hmm. life back. But yeah, I remember thinking in the summer, getting my guys vaccinated thinking in my head without saying it out loud at a certain point this school year, the masks will come off or at the bare minimum, Caroline, at the bare minimum, something like Quebec had, which is when you get to the seat in your classroom, if you're walking the hallways, if you're going to the lunchroom, sure, put it on similar to what we do in restaurants and gyms. You know, you hear probably from countless parents that talk about um, that, that say, Caroline, I think about more than COVID. My child has a speech impediment. My child is learning English as a first language. My child has a hearing disability. My child's autistic. And, they just, they just fight battles that I don't as a parent. So I want to listen to them, and they want the masks off more than anybody. And and there's one way to get it off, right? Get vaccinated. Yeah. I do that. I mean, nobody loves the masks being on, but people, you know, the majority of parents and <laughs> the vast majority of children do it because they know it keeps them safe, it keeps others safe. And so they do it, and they do it properly. I mean, just to your point, Greg, on what this has done for your kids in the sense that now, because your children are vaccinated, they don't have to isolate for 10 days if there's a close contact. That they don't have as disruptive a school year as somebody in their class who was unvaccinated. That's what I want for my children who are in the 5 to 11 bracket. And hopefully that's what I get out of this. Last thing for you, because I know you watch you watch education trends and write about them all over um, the globe. Um, and we see the states is um, 
you know, it's something onto itself. And uh, and yet there's very pitched battles. And some of it is some of it's quite frightening. They argue about everything about education. But um, I you know, I, we've been more passive, even when we've all disagreed about this measure or that measure or what schools should do or what they shouldn't do. I, I do wonder. I, I do think the masks will be a growing one because parents will say, I did everything I was supposed to do. We we've got mask policies from 12 months ago that are exactly the same in schools. And we have one third of the cases and we have a ton of vaccinated people. Then we had zero percent of vaccinated people last year at this time. So they'll make those points and they'll I think they'll push a little bit harder. And at some point, someone one board will have to go first or one, you know, one administrator will have to go first and say, this is what I believe we should we should get them off soon. It will be interesting to see how it works, because I think it's going to take time. I think parents and kids here understand why we're doing what we're doing. And yes, there are, you know, we didn't see the explosion of cases, but perhaps we didn't see the explosion of cases because masks are on, because there are HEPA filters in the classroom. Maybe the perhaps the windows are open, you know, um, parents are maybe picking up their kids for lunch so they're not sitting in the classroom to eat. There are things happening that are contributing to the fact that we're not seeing an explosion like we're not seeing so many classes shut down or no, so many schools shut down. I, I think eventually something is going to gotta give, but at what point that happens, I'm not so sure. You're a fantastic resource, great opinion, and, and uh, nobody does it better than you do. Thank you very much for making the time for our show today. Happy to, Greg. Thank you so much. Caroline Alfonso from The Globe and Mail. As we speak to a New York City school social worker who says enough's enough on his Twitter page, it says make masks optional. Kids deserve a normal school year and a normal childhood. He is Justin Spiro. Justin, it's great to have you on. You've been outspoken. You've been uh, a strong advocate for kids and following the science and doing so. When did all of it start? Yeah, I think for me, I got involved long before I was yearning for normalcy, when I was yearning for just like a baseline uh, adolescent experience for my students, like thinking over a year ago, right? We had indoor dining open, we had gyms open and clubs open, yet we shut down every school. Actually, almost exactly, it was, a, it was um, exactly a year ago, I think a year ago tomorrow, we shut down every school in New York City, even if they were masked and six feet apart because our positivity rate was above 3%. So it started back then. We had just this this this, this discord between, um, on one hand, we're letting adults who are much higher risk, and this is long before vaccinations, do what they want and do recreational things, but we can't have kids in school. And whether you want to blame teacher unions or bureaucracy or whatever it is, it, it was just it was just so maddening to me. And it got worse, honestly, as things got better once vaccines were unrolled and once every teacher was vaccine eligible by January. And we still kept kids, more, fun, schools functionally closed, let's say, through June here in New York City. Like by the end of the year, kids were like big whoop, allowed to attend two days a week for like two or three hours each day and stay in the same room all day. And we couldn't put kids, teachers had the right to not have kids less than six feet from each other when the teachers were themselves vaccinated already. This is before Delta, you know, vaccines mm-hmm. by then were bulletproof and we couldn't and now we're seeing the results of that. I, it gives me no joy to say I told you so. And we see, you know, kids um, struggling so much because they had basically no school last year. Where do you see the biggest struggles um, with kids? Do you see it um, on a on an intellectual academic level? There's there's always kids that, you know, if we thought about our own educations. We're like, 
you know, that was a good year. I had a couple of good teachers. This is where I started to peak. I, you know, I, I always think of that entry into high school where you're like, okay, th- this gets a little more real, not as real as college, but it gets a little more real in that th- this is not, you know, this is not elementary school. The teacher isn't going to, you know, uh, be there for me and pick me up when I fall. You're kind of sink or swim. I, I wonder about that entry for kids over the last two years going in. I've got a 10th grader right now. And and like I said, he's done, he's done really well, but I worry about the entry of my next one next fall into school. Right. So you're, so you're a 10th grader, his last fully normal year was seventh grade and he had hit half of eighth grade. And then, you know, so I, as a social worker, admittedly, I, I see things through a different lens and perspective than a classroom teacher. But to, so to me, it's all socio-emotional. And even the academic stuff is emotional because it leads to the frustration. I, ha- I have 11th graders who the hardest year of high school who weren't really prepared for it. They had a very watered down or almost non-existent 10th grade year. They left halfway through freshman year. And now they're expected to do uh, advanced science and AP history and all these things that they weren't really prepared for. Same thing with the seniors. They left the sophomores. So every year, it doesn't matter what grade the, the kid's in, every developmental year is important. Um, and so we're seeing that academic stress, which leads to emotional stress, whether it be depression or anxiety, um, but also on the interpersonal level, kids just don't know how to function with each other. Everything's been exacerbated. The anxious kids are now, you know, even more anxious. They're hiding, you know, in, in their shell and uh, have paralyzed by, you know, social anxiety and the kind of dysregulated, aggre- you know, leaning towards aggressive kids who were able to c- control their aggression before are now getting into fights because they've had 18 months of no structure. Yeah. It, like, it, it, hey, listen, if we're having rational um, parents, you know, argue with strangers uh, on a website for an hour and a half um, <laughs> um, and, and you know, are, are risking careers and livelihoods by doing so, think about how the, the, the irrationality of a 13-year-old who gets so angry he just wants to pop somebody in the face or girls that want to go back home and slam, you know, somebody they don't like on Instagram. That's a real thing. Like that's 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 been happening since the beginning of time. But the tension and how fried they are and the tools they can now utilize, especially online, are uh, are a lot different than they were 20, 25 years ago, where you, you could settle something in the schoolyard and it'd probably be over with. They had the, the toxic social media, but balanced out by seeing peers in a structured environment with caring, supportive teachers and staff every day. For the 18 months, all they had was toxic social media and all they had was street fights because it was unsafe, quote unquote, for them to be in a classroom. And so, you know, we were so COVID strict that we wound up being lax on their overall development. Justin Spiro is our guest. He's a school social worker in New York City. So someone might be listening and I want to give them ample opportunity to to take aim at us. So I'll turn the barrels on us. Uh, what do you say to somebody who's hearing two guys have a conversation who say, who says COVID's not over. You got the masks work. You guys sound like you're, you're, you know, you're trying to be reckless with our kids health or my kids health. What's the response from you in that capacity? I mean, well, they're right. COVID's not over and COVID will never be over. COVID's going to become endemic. It's, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but mm-hmm. everything I've read, everything I've heard, like no one believes anymore that we're going to get rid of COVID or hit some magical threshold where it disappears. Um, everyone age five plus, I don't know if it's true in Canada, but at least in America is vaccine eligible. Um, everyone, every adult in America is booster eligible. Um, so there has to be a certain point, a certain off ramp, right? Like if you say, okay, let's mask for another couple of weeks or whatever, until we get everyone who wanted to get vaccinated, vaccinated, 
personally, I'd be fine with that, right? Okay, January 1st, we take off the masks just a few weeks. But to say we're going to keep masking. Meanwhile, like I was at the, speaking of uh, hockey, at the Ranger game mm-hmm. last night, 18,000 people, not a, almost not a mask in sight. Um, and older people, we know that older people, even 40, 50, 60 year olds are much higher risk than vaccinated and unvaccinated kids. And they're there. And they're yeah. at the, the game. And you probably saw kids at the game with their parents or uncles or older brothers, yeah, right? Yeah. Of course all you did. All ages. So now yeah. we have, we have um, teenagers, especially vaccinated teenagers, but even the unvaccinated kids who are subject to these draconian restrictions as if we're still in April 2020, knowing nothing, knowing nothing about COVID. And there's no end date. It's not like we're going to do it for two weeks or four weeks. There's no end date. There's no end metric. So it leaves people feeling like, like you said with your son, I'm sure he's glad to be back in school, but it's definitely miles above, you know, head and shoulder above being at home on remote learning. But still, like, when do we get back to normalcy? Justin Spiro is our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Where I struggle is the idea of if we're talking about practicality, we're talking, as you said, um, 14, 15 months ago, and we've got a pre-vaccine world. Um, I'm I'm a lot more understanding of it. But when I, you know, when I think about the practicality of masks versus vaccines, but then I also think you you hear people talk about the theater. I can put an epidemiologist on, he'll talk about the hygiene theater of, you know, wearing it between stations at the gym or or as you you're wearing it to walk into Madison Square Garden and then you take it off or wearing it to walk to the bathroom in a restaurant. And they'll say, but but it does provide, it does tell other people that you care about them. I'm really done with it. I'm really done with that. That's not my job. That's not anyone's job to make me feel better. Everyone's got to navigate. Of course, we got to pick up uh, and and protect our most vulnerable. Of course, we've got to pick up people when they stumble mentally, physically, emotionally. But if we if we cycle with that, well, the mask shows how much you care. We won't get out of this, period. Yeah, I mean, so maybe we could all wear like a nice T-shirt or a nice button showing with an inspirational saying that showing how much we care about people. But, <laughs> you know, we cared about people before COVID, right? We cared yeah. about people before masks, right? Right, And so there has to be at, at some point an end point. And to, your, or to the point, to play devil's advocate, right? The people who say, well, you know, there are some kids or especially adults who are immunocompromised. Right? Those are very real concerns. Mm-hmm. I think no one should ever be disallowed from wearing a mask. Right. If someone is and the, the most protection someone can choose for themselves, an adult could get three shots, fully vaccinated with a booster, can wear a medical grade mask if they so choose. But and that's that's a personal decision on a societal level to say everyone wears a cloth mask forever just doesn't make sense because there are costs on the other side. And that's what we don't always talk about. It seems like it's almost taboo to even acknowledge that. Like Mayor de Blasio here in New York City hasn't even said he keeps saying, oh, kids are adapted well to it. He hasn't even said masks really do hamper learning and socialization and emotional expression, and we want to get it off as soon as possible. Hasn't even gone that far. To even say that makes you like a Trump supporter. But the incoming mayor has said that. I played a clip of him a week and a yeah. half ago, yeah. and I was like, this is what I want to hear from political leaders. This is the messaging. This is what I want you to do to create confidence in uh, in, in your electorate and in all of us that that you see an end date in sight, that you see an off ramp in sight. And, and yeah, that probably should be guided by science, guided by metrics, guided by numerators and denominators. But at least you see it. And that's 
That's the struggle for so many people seeing it in political leaders and more importantly, public health officials right now. Like I, I know it's so unfair to say, well, there's a bunch of people that don't want this to end. But 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 if they don't know how to end it, they're afraid to be wrong. And that's that's almost as bad to me. Yeah, I mean, and there's certain practical steps that like you can take now no matter what, like if you even just acknowledge that masks are not perfect, that we don't love masks, they have some downsides. For example, we have vaccinated kids masking outdoors, but, but not by choice that like running laps at gym class. They have to wear a mask as they run the lap outdoors, vaccinated outside. Like those are some basic things that a mayor or politician could say tomorrow that's stopping. And then here's our timeline for stopping the rest of masks. You know, again, it, it, this year is so much better, so much better than mm-hmm. last year. Like just it, last year, I couldn't do my job at all. Like I literally couldn't do my job. Kids are at home. They come in once a week. They don't talk. It's like they're one dimensional. They're in shell shock from the, giving two hours a week of school this year. It's a vibrant school community. Um, and, but the masks, right. They, 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 they do inhibit and they are something that mm-hmm. you need to work towards getting off of. Justin Spiro, our guest from New York City. Thank you so much for the time. It's great to to uh, uh, come across your uh, your pathway. I'm sure you hear from parents that are supportive. I'm sure you hear from some that don't. But as we know in the, in our world right now, like we could ask a hundred people if uh, if the sun comes up uh, in the in the morning, and eight or nine people will say, "Of course it doesn't." What are you talking about? That's you know someone someone's drawing it up there. Uh, so you you can never get you can we can never find unanimity, but I. I think you're probably making a difference in a bunch of parents' life by the day, by the week. Um, And I appreciate you coming on and talking to some of the parents that listen to this show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Justin Spiro, uh, guidance counselor, social worker in New York City schools. Okay, big day of announcements about the vaccine for 5 to 11, about the border opening, no uh, antiquated, nonsensical PCR test when you leave. And then you can go to the Sabres game Saturday, the Bills game Sunday, and they're just showing that test from Thursday morning because that's fine. That makes perfect sense. By the way, speaking of New York State, uh, before we bring on Ryan Imgren, um, Thanksgiving weekend is next weekend in the U.S. That's a bigger deal than probably our Thanksgiving. We know that. That's okay. Um, I wish we could have both Thanksgivings. Uh, Kathy Hochul is the new governor, right? She replaced uh, Andrew Cuomo. That was in all the papers, by the way, uh, that Andrew Cuomo is no longer governor of New York. I think it is. Kathy Hochul is the new governor. Just in case you think that awful, dreadful, conflicting, hypocritical public health messaging comes only from this country, let me tell you that it doesn't. Here's her tweet yesterday. And this is about Thanksgiving. Remember, the best way to put an end to the pandemic is to get the vaccine if you haven't yet or get the booster if you have. Now, I'm fu- of course, yes. Mask up in indoor spaces. Maintain social distancing of six feet. We all want to celebrate Thanksgiving safely. This is how we do it. Wait a minute. Are I supposed to mask up at the Thanksgiving dinner table? Are we maintain social distancing of six feet, even if I'm fully vaccinated with people I know uh, live in my own house? Nobody understands this. And more importantly, nobody's going to do this. You lose people when you talk about things like this. Ryan Imgren, biostatistician. I know you enjoy a good mixed public health message as much as the next guy. How about that? This seems to happen everywhere, but especially around (laughs) Thanksgiving. um, It's it's unbelievable. (laughs) You can you can do but you can do more than that. (laughs) I know you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I mean, from from what we saw here in. Ontario around disinfecting doorbells when it came down to Halloween. That's really, really tough to top. 
Yeah, yeah. And and people aren't going to, yeah, they're not going to mask up with their own family members. If you want so many smart people in the States, Ryan, have said, sure, a rapid test. I mean, the first time I got together with my parents in the summer of 2020, we went and got a PCR test. But if you want to have rapid tests, they're, and by the way, they're a lot more affordable. They're a lot more available in most of these U.S. states than they have been in Ontario so far. Yeah, rapid tests work really, really well. It's one of those things that you can easily hand them out to people. Um, in fact, you know, sort of like the unknown thing, which I don't think a lot of people know, is that a lot of these companies, they actually give out, you know, um, a lot of these rapid tests to places who also get their PCR equipment as well. So it's, you know, one of those, you know, like buy one, get one free type things where that's why we have so many of these rapid tests, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we also use some of their PCR equipment as well. So it's a thing that is, it's not free, but it's pretty close to free. And if you just think of what the like time and the money that one single rapid test can save, it's, it's shocking mm-hmm. that we literally don't have them everywhere um, here across the province right now. Yeah, and people should know where to get them and, and, and where to be. That, that would be a great uh, use of government money instead of commercials that still tell people to wash hands and stay six feet away from people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about having, you know, rapid test properly in schools where there's just one case. And one of the real, real like bonuses of that is if there's a case in a classroom and those students are eligible for vaccination, what you can do is you can send home a rapid test with every single one of those kids and they can return if they have a negative result. Now, I mean, it's not flawless, but in a situation like that, what you can do is that you can ensure that there's only one case and that Mm. you do not disrupt the learning of the other 19 students in the class. So not only are you able to keep the other 19 students in class, but if they're younger students who will be eligible for vaccination very, very soon, you don't have to keep their parents out of work for weeks. And I mean, this is at the cost of a very, very cheap test. You could rapid test a whole entire class for under $100. And the savings from that, when it comes down to lost time from school, lost time from work are really astronomical. And I don't think people get this. I've been talking a fair amount about masks and I'm not advocating for getting rid of masks right now. It's certainly not until there's a long window where elementary school kids can get can get tested or or can uh, can get vaccinated. But I don't think there's much doubt that uh, the vaccine is the first layer of protection. Then ventilation's massively important. Then even also ahead of the masks are is testing. If we had rapid testing every day, we wouldn't need masks as, as prominently as we do with kids. Yeah. And this simply is just one other thing that we see what they're doing in Europe. Rapid tests are a really, really big thing there. Um, they have been a really big thing for quite some time. Even when you're charging people for it, you're like charging people the actual cost price of it. It's not a profit making thing for businesses. And when you have rapid access to tests, you also normalize that behavior mm-hmm. as well. So if we had had it here since, you know, let's say like Easter, we would know that going into the holidays, oh, look, it's holiday time, it's rapid testing time, and they just come hand in hand. And you find that once you use a rapid test, once you've seen someone use a rapid test, and I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of people have used rapid tests themselves or have seen them actually used. They've seen the old PCR used. They don't want to get tested. But if they see how easy these rapid tests are, how fast these results are, we would see literally millions of Ontarians jump on board. A thousand percent. It's a lot less physically uncomfortable. And uh, boy, when you bring up Easter, I, I, I look back on that. I'm like, OK, we move the April break. 
Then we send kids back to school a couple of days and then we decide to shut schools down after everybody's congregated again. For, I can't. It's just hard to believe we were, uh, we, you know, our, our education uh, leaders and our government leaders and our public health leaders were walking so blindly back in April. Yeah. And it's super frustrating because we we always knew as well that every single holiday will be associated with an increase in cases. Mm-hmm. When you have things like March break and you don't, you know, force people not to travel, they are going to travel. They are going to go from one region to the next. It's going to normalize cases, which means that areas with high cases, um, you know, those individuals will be exposed to areas with low cases. Like imagine if we had Christmas break right now, we would see people from like, let's say Sudbury, where I am, you would see them where there's a super, super high case rate, like traveling to other areas or individuals traveling up here. And we would see cases absolutely skyrocket. Then you have schools mm-hmm. reopen and then it like, propagates within the classroom. So I brought this up yesterday. Ryan Ingram, biostatistician, joining us on Toronto today. I wrote this Ontario. 15 million people in the province has 17 fully vaccinated people in ICU testing positive for COVID-19. In Durham region where I am, there's 600,000 people there. The seven day average of hospitalizations is 0.29. People are still counting cases, and I'm okay with that. They, they're not nothing, but they're a lot less significant than a year ago. You've talked a ton about our value, and our value is is almost, that's more, should be the leading metric, right, on television newscasts and in newspapers. Should it not be? It absolutely should be. It's just one of those things that when we see a one big day case count, like I think we had 711 cases yesterday, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, it doesn't really matter because we've seen the R value drop down. In fact, we seem to be around an R value of one and our value of one is very sustainable because what we know in our value of one will lead to is that if the cases are steady, then hospitalization should be relatively steady as well. They may uptick five or 10 over the next month, but it's not going to be any, any significant increase. We, we know, and we've seen this like everywhere. Once you see the R value significantly tick up, once you see these cases significantly rise, we know it will lead to more hospitalizations, but we simply have to stop following this, you know, one day high. Cause that was the big news yesterday, 711 cases. It's the highest cases since this date. It's the highest cases since that date. Who really cares? The reproduction value is right around one. That's the messaging that we need to get out to people, not these one day case counts where it's really high or it's really low. No one really cares anymore. Wouldn't you say I got to go soon, but wouldn't you say we're also we've got to avoid any kind of hysteria that's going to arise. Parents are going to vaccinate their kids. Absolutely, they are. But we've got to avoid the idea that there's a media story like there's a breakthrough case. A fully vaccinated five year old is tested positive. Positive tests are going to happen. Like, I hope every parent is understanding there's not some magical elixir that would make a five year old not test positive. But guys like you and me. Uh, would it's you, you you may have your kid pop positive for a test but the fact you gave him a vaccination is going to greatly limit that and also greatly prevent the spread but nothing's universal right and also if we hear what's being said about case counts what we're hearing now and it's to almost be expected that there's almost each day an equal number of cases in the vaccinated and unvaccinated population we can expect that to happen mm-hmm. so the the messaging that we should be saying now is one in 25,000 people who are unvaccinated above 12 are in the ICU. For the fully vaccinated, just one in 600,000 that are fully vaccinated are in the ICU. That's the kind of messaging we need to uh, get out so that we can see that these vaccines are still working. 
and you amplify that, and I'm happy to amplify your amplification of those messages. I always appreciate your time and, and coming on with us. We'll talk next Friday. Follow him on Twitter at Imgren. Have a great weekend, Ryan. See you later. Take care. Uh, Sheba Siddiqui is a new movie about uh, Pamela Anderson and, and Tommy yes. Lee. How many, honestly, how many, how much attention do we need to give this couple? They, they oh, come on. Come this on. The, this was the story. It's, yeah, I, I'm very excited about this story. You're not about this movie? I, I don't, look, I, I'm not into, um, how would I put it? I'm not saying you are. I'm not into uh, uh, their their thing, and I didn't watch the tape, and I don't want to watch other people doing. It's I'm not. You've that, never seen the Pat never, and Tommy I, tape. I, I wa- this is a lie. I had turned ar- a- I turned away from it for like, and after six seconds, there's just things you can't unsee. Okay, I don't, I, but but you were curious. You did. To, it was just in the in a room, and I wandered past the room, and that's all I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the VHS days. Uh, well, this is a trailer. I mean, I've seen the trailer for it. It's Lily James plays Pam and Sebastian Stan plays Tommy. And it, it's it really about what happened to them. Sure, their love story and all that, blah, 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 blah. But it's about how the, t- the tape got leaked and how all of their, their private... It was an electrician that was in their house and he stole a bunch of their items and then he put it all on what was known as, you know, the, the internet back then. And Seth and, Rogen plays this electrician, I'm seeing. Yes, Seth Rogen's the electrician. So I think it's going to be an interesting movie. Seth Rogen's in it. Uh, Nick Offerman looks like a guy I've seen in my nightmares several times. I'm not saying sexual nightmares, but Nick Offerman looks just beyond frightening. He doesn't look anything <laughs> like his 30 Rock character. Well, this was... I feel like the obsession with this, this was the... First, the OG sex tape, wasn't it? Ever uh, on the internet? That like, I'm kind aware of. All, of. Yes. Uh, that, <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Uh, you're right. Well, I mean, no, like, what, what else? Uh, <laughs> this was the, I feel like it was, the internet was sort of a new thing back then. And, you know, we, we were all, you know, doing, learning how to use it. And then all of a sudden, Pam and Tommy's tape came out. And we thought, whoa, there's a whole other way of using the internet. And I, this was the first, I think that's why it's such an infatuation for a lot of people. And they were that couple. And she was like... I mean, I remember Baywatch for decades was the number one show in India. Well, all over the world, but in India, like decades after yeah. the show had ended. So, Do you remember a show called VIP that she was on? Yeah, I love VIP. I thought she was kind of clever in that. And that kind of, I'd, I'd watch it occasionally. And uh, and I thought she was humorous. I don't think she got to show a lot of that. I mean, the, the scripts for Baywatch were ridiculous. But I actually <laughs> thought she showed more, more comic uh, zing on vip she and i did so, so she took the whole dumb blonde thing and she ran with that's it, right them, i'll show you how dumb i am yeah yeah, yeah. It, it was very marilyn monroe-esque where you're like um you're underestimating her intelligence like i yes. i've taken i took a lot of film courses at university so i've seen a lot of the uh a, a lot of the marilyn monroe classics seven year itch and and uh blondes have more fun etc cetera, etc cetera. here's the great question about pamela anderson is she's 54 she's kind of She's kind of faded, like show business wise, into obscurity. Do you think she wants to wants to work and just hasn't been able to, or do you think she's like, I've made my money, I did it for years, now I can just be a mom, I can just hang out, I can read books, I can go for? Do you think she wants to do more stuff, or did, did Hollywood turn its back on her? How no, would you think I feel it? like she's done. I've, I I feel like she willingly retired. Yeah. And you see her, you see her a little bit here and there. Like there's a show called The Hills and her son Brandon is a cast member in The Hills and sometimes she'll make a cameo. She'll be, and she lives in Paris last, last I remember because Trump was president and she said she's getting out of here. So she moved to Paris. I don't know if she's back now. And I remember that her son, she will come visit her son and she'll help his apartment and, and she sort of steals the scene in every, every scene that she's in in the show. So she's, she's around. She's apparently married uh, to her bodyguard, Dan Hayhurst, uh, like uh. in 2020 on December 24th. 
She got. I think Christmas Eve marriages probably have a lot of risk uh, to them. You're like, <laughs> what? What is going on here? You're like, uh, you're like Andy Bernard in The Hangover. Next thing you know, you've got a tooth missing, and there's there's photos everywhere of you marrying a, an exotic dancer. Like you gotta. I I don't know if Christmas Eve marriages have a lot of thought put into them. I could be and wrong you about know what? that. She is our honorary <laughs> blonde Canadian. She's our Vancouverite, and she's baited, and she's a, a household name for anybody, whether you like her or not. So good for her. I like her. I, I I think I think it's interesting. I just think her her ab yeah her absence from the scene. You're right. It's probably self created. Um, and I know there's always that criticism. Well, there's no you get older and there's less roles for for women when they hit a certain peak and plateau and uh, unless you're Meryl Streep and you can act your way out of a, you know, a box. Um, and I don't think that's that's who Pam was, but I, I think it's interesting. I do wonder whether she'd want to do more stuff or whether she's like, I don't need it anymore. I don't need the public scrutiny. I'll just do what I want when I want. I think her son's trying to break into the industry now and she's supporting that. I forgot about the Kid Rock thing. That's really regrettable. Oh, that I can, was great. I can defend. No, it's not. I can defend Tommy Lee. I can defend Ugh. marrying Tommy Lee at a certain point in time. I can't. And a, a relationship of yes. any sort with Kid with the with Kid Rock's indefensible to me. I agree with that, hundred percent. Okay, good. Now, do, do you want to do this uh, Meghan Markle clip? We got time. We got a few minutes. We do. So Meghan was on Ellen yesterday, the Duchess of Sussex, and um, she was telling Ellen about a story about an experience she had in our in our city. He came to see me in Toronto and, um, and our friends and his cousin Eugenie and now her husband Jack, they came as well and the four of us snuck out in Halloween costumes to just have one fun night on the town before it was out in the world that we were a couple. So you went with Harry to a Halloween party and they had no idea it was the two of you? No. It was a, a post-apocalypse theme so we had all of this very bizarre costuming on and we were able to just sort of have one final fun night out. Now, there are people at home going, I was at that party. Oh, right. They, 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 I'm sure. They're like, I was at the post-apocalyptic party. In was Toronto. Which yeah. ones were they? So, Brady, that yeah. could have been you. Maybe you were at a party that night I and didn't, they were there. Uh, yeah, the, the post-apocalyptic theme made uh, made perfect sense to me. Do you think she's... Now, where were... um Where was Lily during this? Where was Archie? Where were the, where were the kids? They were... What do you mean during... The, no, not this recent Halloween. This is when they were dating, she's talking about. Oh, okay. I should have clarified that. No, no, no. They're at home. They're in LA. They're in their Bel Air mansion right now. But no, this was when she was... When she lived here, she lived off of DuPont when she was in the city shooting for suits. Shooting for suits, okay. And and Harry had snuck in to see her. And I didn't know his cousin Eugenie had come as well with her boyfriend at the time, who I believe is now her husband. And they went to a Halloween party in Toronto. So people out there, you could have been at a party with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. How and she looks great. She looks happy. Uh, well, there's, I mean, you know, the those 10-hour work days, right? Uh, getting up in the morning at, at the same time we do. She doesn't have to do any of that stuff. She should look great. There's no excuse for not looking great if oh, you're her. I think Am I not really, wrong? I think she looks great because she left the monarchy. Um, she uh, pff, Diana stayed looking great the entire monarchy and post-monarchy. So yeah, well, there's some genetic factors there. I didn't realize she was 40 years old. I would have guessed about 37, 30, 36. It's 40 I didn't now. No, no, that I think that's why they they wanted to get those two kids as quickly as possible. So what's next for like they're doing documentaries and they they're doing she wanted to do voiceovers right for some Disney princess thing. What? What what will they eventually do? How how omnipresent will they be in our lives? I don't. Well, I mean, they wanted privacy and they moved to L.A., so that tells you something right there. <laughs> There's so, not. Why don't you move to Montana? Yes. If you exactly. want privacy, go to the go go to where Yellowstone is filmed, and you'll get your private. <laughs> except for everybody killing everybody there. Well, but that's, I think she just wanted it on her own terms, and she's getting that. And you know what? What's wrong with that? 
don't you're making me try and like criticize her and i don't you know how i felt about that interview i thought she just laid a lot of stuff out there and uh made a lot of implications that yes she needed to the the press in the in england was Uh, no because they were hammering her they were they hated her yeah there's some holes in some of her stories right I do not yes. agree with this. No, okay. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a passport. I can't go anywhere. I'm locked up. How would I get any mental health help? What, no, that, what am I supposed to do? It's not that easy. This is like, it's, it's not. Kind of like a, no, it's not that easy. Think about women who are in tough situations and people tell them, oh, just leave. And they don't because they can't. It's that's not different. That. That's not that's not what I'm saying. She's got access to everything imaginable. Anything she she could go to a family member and say, oh, well, the family member doesn't want that in public. That's fine. Look at that everything would... that happened between Charles and Diana oh, that wasn't public until 15 years after. Yeah, but I mean, she would have her marriage would have blown up if she had just gotten up and left. While they were both part of the monarchy, her marriage would have blown up. No, no, get would... get some in in house counseling to Buckingham Palace. People come in and out of that palace, but they don't do that. They don't... with nobody notices. Anybody. We already know this from the Crown. They don't talk about oh, their I... feelings. Well, I think that's 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 a uh, that, but that's a changing thing because then Diana started to. Clearly. And look what happened. Well, I. T- <laughs> okay, that's a that's a good point. You got me there. <laughs> I'll give you that. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to subscribe, rate our podcast as well uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back with a live show on Monday morning, the 22nd of November. It's great having you in. Thanks for finding the time to spend some of it with us. We know time is valuable. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend.